0: Turn to Acts chapter 11. We have one more passage of Scripture to read to complete this story. We've heard the account as it unfolds, and now I want us to read a short summary in chapter 11 as Peter returns and gives the account and a defense of it to the Jews at Jerusalem. So we've heard all of chapter 10. Let's read 11, 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them? But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey, And reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter he will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Jesus had told his disciples to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. At the time, that sounded adventurous, exciting, triumphant. But the mission soon lost its luster when the Jewish believers realized that going to Samaria and to the ends of the earth meant being defiled by association with. Gentiles. This division between Jew and Gentile was deep socially, politically, and even religiously. The Jewish church was facing a day of reckoning with this truth that being joined to God by faith meant being joined to Gentiles Who were also joined to God by faith. Study Ephesians chapter 2 this week. And there's a story there about being dead in sin, being made alive. This is the gift of God, it's not of works, lest we should boast. And then the story turns to this Jew Gentile division. And there, Paul writes to the church at Ephesus that a wall of partition that was built between Jew and Gentile comes crumbling down. There is no more a distinction because we are all brothers and sisters by faith in Jesus Christ. When Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, Again, addressing the Jew-Gentile divide, he would say, by faith, we are all descendants of Abraham. It doesn't matter if your DNA is Jewish. What matters is, do you have the faith of Father Abraham? If so, you're in the family. All through the New Testament, there is evidence that this struggle to reckon with the wall coming down between Jew and Gentile was a very real and lasting struggle. Even in our story, it looks like Peter has understood now. His Gentile brothers are not unclean. But the day would come when he goes to Galatia, and he's sitting eating with the Gentile brothers there until the Jewish followers come in, and he picks up his table tray, and he moves away and sits down with the Jews as if he made a mistake. Even Peter is going to struggle with this lesson, with this understanding that in Christ that division no longer exists. And and just, just as a side note here, when the Bible speaks of there's not Jew or Gentile, in Christ, it doesn't mean there's nothing to national or ethnic recognition. Of course there is. Uh, And people can have uh, a sense of pride in their national cultural upbringing. He's not saying those things don't exist. Otherwise, when we get to the phrase, neither is there male or female in Christ, suddenly we kind of get real weird, like that doesn't make any sense. His point is, those identities fade away in light of the reality that we are in Christ by faith. In that standing, we find complete equality. And from that standing, we can then speak with wisdom and truth and hope. Two issues of race. Two issues of gender. Remember, this was God's idea to have male and female. To have to have all these characteristics built into the DNA of humanity that could manifest themselves in, in dark skin and light skin and and tissue over the eyes that would make us look like we have slanted eyes or bright, wide-open eyes. All those characteristics that we think of as these racial differences are are really minute genetic distinctions, all highlighting the beauty, the design, the creativity of our God. In all those differences, we can be content knowing that the great unity is found not in those descriptions, but in our faith in Jesus Christ. Jews and Gentiles in the first century and beyond struggled greatly with understanding a gospel that went to all nations. And in our text, God is giving additional light. He is shining his truth into lives to help them understand God's really big plan of redemption. The light is shining for Cornelius Through a vision and an angelic message, God is steering him in truth. The light is shining for Peter, who thought he understood this, but the light is increasing, and so must now his faithful obedience. The light would shine as Peter proclaims the gospel to Cornelius and the gathering that he assembled at his house. And then we see in chapter 11, God shines further light, even for those Jewish believers, who criticized at the beginning of chapter 11, but by the middle of that chapter, they're done. They're silent. And they're glorifying God in this this plan of this gospel that saves anyone. And so we read in Psalm 36, for with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. By the light that God sends, our eyes can see what is true. Psalm 43.3, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Our story is the unfolding of light and truth that is leading people onward to the presence of God. We must continue to grow in our understanding of God's plan for spreading the gospel. Maybe we think we know the gospel and how to spread it, but according to the life of Peter, there may be something that needs to be refined. Maybe we can do better. So let's make sure we're growing in our understanding of God's plan to rescue sinners. From this lengthy account, I want you to see six observations about the plan of God. How it unfolds in this pivotal moment of church history. The gospel is reaching Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria is kind of the next door neighbor. But now Peter has begun to wander beyond those regions. We're getting into that last phase of Jesus' commission to the ends of the earth, essentially to the Gentiles. Could this really be what God wants Peter to do? Could this be what he wants for the church at Jerusalem, to actually expand and include people that they're used to not liking? Actually, they're they're quite righteous about their disdain for Gentiles. The first observation, really, the big issue that comes out of the text is this Gentile inclusion in God's plan of salvation. So the first thing we see about God's plan is that God's plan has always been to save people from all nations. It's just a day of reckoning for the Jews. And frankly, it's not that this was a surprise to them either. It's just that they had grown so accustomed to being superior to Gentiles that there was really a sense of no turning back. Yes, God had chosen Israel as his people there in the Old Testament. However... Gentile inclusion was always a part of the plan. You remember Genesis 12 when God called Father Abraham, the father of this Jewish nation. And in his words to Abraham, he said, I will bless you and through you I will bless all the families of the earth. So the Jewish mindset should have been, yes, God used Father Abraham, but as a channel to get the gospel to all nations. The prophets would continue to add to this expectation of Gentile inclusion in redemption's plan. Isaiah would speak often, but probably most clearly in chapter 60 and beyond, when he would say to the people of God, Arise, shine, For your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, thick darkness cover the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In the following chapters that conclude Isaiah's prophecy, He he pleads with Israel to be the light of God to the nations. In Psalm 67, the psalmist said, Let the nations be glad. Let the peoples praise Him. Why? Because the gospel has always been for all people. The Old Testament people of God, the Jews, yes, received The law received the prophets and the promises so that it would go to all nations. Revelation chapter 5. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. God's plan has always included the salvation of the Gentiles. And so it is in our story here that he also gives them this experience of receiving the Holy Spirit. Here in Genesis 10, we have what is called the Gentile Pentecost. The gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. The Holy Spirit is poured out. There's the sign of speaking in languages. All this to echo the event at Pentecost that was given to the Jews there in Jerusalem. Listen to how Peter describes it over chapter 11, verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, oh, I'm sorry, that's chapter 10, verse 17 of chapter 11. If then God gave the same gift to them As he gave to us, meaning the Holy Spirit poured out, when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This was God's plan. And just as he confirmed to the Jews in Jerusalem there on the day of Pentecost that his promise through the prophet Joel would be kept, the Spirit poured out on every believer. So now, as the gospel went to Samaria, you remember back in chapter 8, we saw it there, the Spirit was poured out in Samaria, and now, just as Jesus said, you will be my witnesses when the Spirit comes upon you in power. We've seen that Holy Spirit coming in Jerusalem, Judea, we see it in Samaria, and now we see it as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth. I'm often asked, by people uh, in the area, people inquiring about the church, people that would stop by and visit this church property, which was once a very Pentecostal church, they will ask me in preparation for making a visit, do you believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit evidenced by speaking in tongues? And by now I kind of have a set answer. I say, well, according to Acts 2, the Spirit was poured out in keeping with Jesus' promise that we would be witnesses, In Acts 4, even the Samaritan believers experience that same gift. In Acts 10, now the Gentile believers experience it. But once that spirit is poured out for believers, now now we come to Corinthians and Paul says, everyone who believes is baptized into one spirit by that spirit into the body of Christ. We see it here. It's unfolding for us. What we saw at Pentecost in chapter 2, We hear the echo now in chapter 10. God is reminding all believers, Jew and Gentile, that the Holy Spirit is for all, salvation is for all, the call to be witnesses is for all. But this inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God would be a real pill to swallow, we would say, for the Jews. But swallow they must. Because eventually, to withhold the gospel from anyone or to insist that it was only for you may indicate you don't really understand the gospel. The second observation we make is this. God's plan must dictate the way I think about the unfolding plan of God. In other words, there may be two plans in place. God's plan for saving all who believe and my idea of what that plan is. In Peter's case, he understood preaching to Gentiles. After all, he's beginning to travel around and do that. But he's not ready to call them clean. They're still Gentiles, There's still a subcategory of people. Peter's traveling around preaching the gospel. He thinks he knows God's plan, but he has his preconceived notions that are affecting the plan. And they need to be surrendered to the actual plan. We see it there in chapter 10, Peter's vision. He sees these animals, and once we see reptiles in there, we know that this big sheet, this big tablecloth that he sees, includes clean and unclean animals. But the voice says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter said, by no means, Lord. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. The voice comes to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common or unclean. Peter maintains, ironically, a sense of righteousness in defying this heavenly message. The message from heaven is kill and eat. I want you to learn through this object lesson. And Peter, in defying that command, feels holy. Oh, not so, Lord. That, those words don't really go together. You can't do that. You can't say, I'm too holy to obey God. Just reminds us how good we are at justifying what we think and what we want to do. Not so, Lord. But as we grow in our understanding of the actual plan of God to save, Maybe our understanding needs to be revised a little bit. We need to be willing to renounce any position, any conviction, any standard, any tradition that does not conform to the word of God regarding God's mercy in saving sinners. Are we willing to abandon ideas of our own, ideas of our family, ideas of our church, Ideas of of this pastor, if they do not match what God says about salvation. We don't get to have our idea of the plan and the plan and then think they go together. They don't. God's plan must dictate the way I think about his plan unfolding. Peter had to keep growing. He had to give up any ideas that didn't fit with, as the song says, the wideness of God's mercy. And so must we be willing to tweak whatever I'm thinking about the gospel and how to give it and what it means, because my thinking may not be right. God hasn't misspoken. I may. So let us be willing to surrender our ideas and make sure they are holy and completely biblical. Observation number three, God's plan is being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just briefly, I want us to think on the Spirit's influence here. In, in, in simple language, verse 19, Peter's received this vision. It, it kind of is it's upsetting the apple cart of his mind. His little thoughts are rolling all over the place because he's seen unclean food and he's being told to eat it. And there's this reckoning with what does that mean? Is it just about my diet? And as you read the rest of the story, you realize, no, he, he had an idea that this was broader than that, that this was getting to this heart of uncleanness or commonness in dealing with the Gentiles. And verse 19 says this, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him. Now, I don't have any confidence that you will have any vision that will have any authority over my life this week. So let's substitute what we know of God's revelation to us and simply think of it this way. While you were thinking on God's word. The Spirit spoke to you. Now it makes perfect sense to us. That fits quite well. God reveals himself to Peter it was in a vision. We're confident that to us it's through his soul sufficient word to us. But by immersing ourselves in the word, By pondering it, by by trying to wrestle with it, and what does this mean? We have the same confidence Peter had that the Spirit will guide us into all truth, as Jesus said it would in John 16. Peter is wrestling with this question of the gospel to the Gentiles, and the Holy Spirit said, This is my specialty. I know exactly how to help you communicate the message of Jesus to them. Because the Holy Spirit's work is to steer us to Jesus and to his word. So the Spirit comes to Peter because the Spirit's role is to provide the power to accomplish the gospel's work. That's why Jesus didn't say at his ascension, you guys surely have seen enough of my ministry Be strong and be a witness. No, he said, after the Spirit comes upon you, you'll have the power to be a witness. God's plan is being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. Stop relegating the Spirit to the shelf by saying, well, I'm just not real good at talking to people. Or I didn't know what to say in that moment. We're neglecting the Spirit's power. Jesus' ministry was in the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter tells us that in verse 37 and 38. As he talks to Cornelius and the whole household of friends that are gathered, he says, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit. And with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Sometimes we think Jesus did everything that he did because he was the Son of God. And that's why he acted the way he did. That's why he responded in love. That's why he was the perfect balance of, of righteous anger with a Pharisee and loving compassion with the woman at the well. We think it, he was just Jesus because he's God. And then we read that Jesus was just like us and faced everything we faced and we're supposed to get it right by the power of the Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. But what we forget is that Jesus also did everything he did in the power of the Spirit. And Peter makes that clear. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power, and went about doing what God asked him to do. You see, when Jesus says, I've given you an example that you can follow in my steps, and then says, walk in the Spirit so you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh, Jesus did that. Jesus did that. He walked that path so that we could follow him in doing the same. God's plan is being accomplished by the power of the Holy Spirit. But was there a day in the past week that you gave a single thought to the power of the Holy Spirit? If not, then reckon with that and this week recognize the hope of going about doing good and carrying out the calling God gave to you is the power of the Holy Spirit. This is God's plan. Even in correcting Peter's understanding, it says it was by the Holy Spirit. Jesus' ministry by the power of the Holy Spirit. Verses 44 and 45, the Gentiles were receiving the same Spirit the Jews had received. Yes, it's great. Joel was right. God would pour out His Spirit to to advance the kingdom of God. But that means your Tuesday afternoon needs to be spirit-led so that you are the right kind of witness in advancing the kingdom of God. We just are not succeeding in the Christian life if we don't think we need the Holy Spirit. Peter thought he had it all together. So much so that he could gently resist God's promptings in his life because he knew better. And the great fix was the Holy Spirit. We need the Spirit to guide us into truth. Observation number four. God's plan centers on the sufficient work of Jesus. Jesus. Here's the challenge Peter faced. The Mosaic Law did, in fact, restrict his diet. The Mosaic Law did, in fact, restrict, in some ways, perhaps not as strictly as the Jews of his day insisted, did restrict his fellowship and interaction with Gentiles. But see what is unfolding in verse 15. When the voice is heard the second time and says, What God has made clean, do not call unclean or common. When we hear that, we think this. In the past, a pig was unclean according to Moses. In the present, the pig is clean according to God. It's kind of what we think because we're used to thinking law, Moses, and now what God is saying. But we should be more precise. In the past, a pig was unclean according to God through Moses. In the present, the pig is clean. So what happened in between the past and the present? What happened between God giving the law to his people, saying these animals are unclean, and now God's saying, did you just call the pig unclean? No, it's not. Don't do that. Peter's saying, no, I'm not going to eat that. It's unclean. And that's what it means to be set apart to God. That's what it means to be holy. And God says, don't ever say that again. Don't call what I'm saying is clean, unclean. Clearly, something's changed. We can get a little understanding into Peter's confusion. It says he was perplexed trying to figure this out. What happened in between the past, pig is unclean, and the present, the pig is clean? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the law. It's not an easy explanation when you study the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. But by no means make the mistake that somehow the law was really hard and now it's just really easy. Because Jesus said, no, actually the law says this, but I'm going I'm to ratchet that up a little bit and, and address the heart. The law might have said, don't kill your brother, but I'm concerned about a heart that just hates the brother. So, If anything, don't hear by the announcement, Jesus fulfilled the law, that, oh, good, that's all done, I don't have to live that way anymore. No, here, actually, we're getting to the real heart of the matter, that kind of an external obedience isn't sufficient, God wants your heart. Jesus happened between the Old Testament Mosaic law and Peter's vision. Jesus fulfilled the law. He kept it perfectly. He satisfied the law's demands for perfection. He satisfied the law's demand for punishment, for the failure to keep the law. In essence, the Mosaic law is not the standard anymore. It's not the standard It's not the clearest expression of holiness. It's not the greatest example of righteousness. But that's exactly what Peter thought. He sees the vision, he's told to eat something unclean, and he defaults to the standard. How do I measure holiness? I measure it by the law that was given to Moses. But if Jesus fulfills that law, not in just the keeping of it, but in the very essence of revealing God's standard of holiness to us, now Jesus is the standard. So the writer of Hebrews can tell us there was an old covenant with an old priesthood, an old system of laws, but they were passing away. They fulfilled their purpose to lead us to Jesus, by whom the new covenant is established. And if there's a new covenant, it necessitates a new priesthood and a new set of laws. And what are those laws? Well, they're given to us all through Scripture. Sometimes the language is just look at the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It's called a law of liberty. It's called a law of love. All these references to, to law still because a new covenant does have a new priesthood and new laws. So we don't see the old as, oh, that didn't work. It worked perfectly. Just stop using that as the standard when a grander, more perfect vision of holiness has come and dwelt among us. This is a great study that needs much more depth and understanding how do we move from the Old Testament to the New? But we often neglect this text in thinking through the hard questions of should Christians observe the Sabbath and other Old Testament laws. And there are answers to them. But just know here in this text, Peter was using what was once a right definition of unclean. I can't eat that. It's unclean. But Jesus... or God says, no, you can't say that anymore. What I have made clean, if I have fulfilled that word's definition and now choose to redefine it, that's possible through the perfection of Jesus Christ. Peter cannot say about the unclean animal on the sheet or the Gentile, they are unclean, where once he could Peter growing up, before Jesus came, little boy, teenager, learning all the Mosaic law, he was right to call certain foods unclean and to recognize Gentiles could make him ceremonially unclean. But now he is wrong to think that. That's an incredible change. That's why a whole book of the Bible, Hebrews, is given to help us understand this transformation. But don't miss the point. For something that significant to change, there must be something really significant that happened. And it did. Jesus came. Jesus accomplished perfect righteousness. The righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, Paul says. Peter doesn't preach the law to the Gentiles. When he met with Cornelius and the family friends, He preached Jesus. He didn't preach to them circumcision. That battle will rage through chapter 15 of Acts. He didn't preach the law. He preached Jesus. Otherwise, Acts 15 would read differently, and we would be talking about circumcision as a requirement for salvation, to be the people of God. That's what the law of Moses says. But Paul would argue in Romans, if you want to go back to that law, do so. But you have to keep it perfectly, and you can't. So reckon with the sufficient work of Jesus in the new covenant to not degrade the Old Testament, but to celebrate it in the perfect accomplishment of its purpose to lead us to something better. Observation number five, God's plan always demands repentance and faith. Law keeping wasn't the means of salvation for Gentiles. Cornelius was kind of there. Early on in chapter 10, we read words that he feared God, he gave alms. You know, he he, he was friendly to Judaism, we know that much. But even as the story unfolds, we realize he doesn't know what it actually means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So he's told, go and get Peter. He will come and tell you how to be saved. Sometimes we're confused in chapter 10, thinking, oh, it looks like he's a believer. But the language that's here, that he feared God, a God-fearer meant to Peter someone who was favorable to Judaism. Judaism. So they may even be practicing some of Judaism, but they haven't been circumcised to become a full convert or proselyte of Judaism. But they're kind of friendly to it, and that's very helpful in the position of a centurion. But he doesn't know truly what the good news is. He knows some standards and some boundaries, but he doesn't know of the rescue that is found in Jesus. The requirement was turning from sin and turning to Christ. And Peter preaches this. When Peter recounts the story over in chapter 11, verse 17, he says, If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way. When they heard these things, they fell silent. They glorified God, saying, Then the Gentiles then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So we see that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and that they had repented in a way that leads to everlasting life. And we've said it before, but the simplest thought is to think of repentance and faith as two sides of one coin. When you drop your coin in the vending machine, it, it works. You get what was promised in the, on the window there. Well, repentance and faith are the means to receiving eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. But in some places in the scriptures, it just says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We'll get there in chapter 16. And it doesn't say repent and believe. In other places, Luke, Jesus said, repent or you will all likewise perish. But he doesn't say the believe part. And it's because either one can stand alone if you see them as two sides of the same coin or one act of turning. Am I turning from the orchestra to the violin? Well, which turn was it? Did I turn from or to? It's both. A turning from this is a turning to this. And so it is in repenting, I turn from sin. I know what it does to me in my standing before God. And I don't want that. I want this. Repentance and faith. And Peter mentions them both in his summary of the gospel going to the Gentiles. They believed in the Lord Jesus. God led them to repentance. He mentions that faith in chapter 10 as he's proclaiming the gospel. After giving the life of Jesus, his righteousness, the death of Jesus, his work of atonement, the resurrection of Jesus and the appearing to witnesses, verse 42, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. You hear that even in the creeds that we recite once in a while to each other. That's language that goes back to the earliest days of the church, meaning Jesus is God, he's Lord, and we are accountable to him. And he goes on to say, to him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. God commands that sinners repent of sin and believe in Jesus. Again, reminding us of what we've heard earlier in Acts, that our witness, sometimes it's in our works, men see them and glorify our Father, and other times, or in combination, it's in our words. And the words of the gospel must call sinners to repent and believe in Jesus. Repentance and faith must shape our message because God commands sinners to repent and believe. For our last point, know this God's plan unfolds His gift of grace. Let me just paraphrase an ancient prayer, actually a confession of sorts, from an early church theologian, Augustine of Hippo, going back to the 300s in the northern. Tip of Africa as the church spread there. Augustine is well known for saying something like this. I'll paraphrase. In his word of prayer and confession to the Lord, he said this Give what you command and command what you choose. Give what you command and command what you choose. In other words, you are God. You can command whatever you want. But if sinners are to obey your commands, it will be because you gave the ability to do so. You see, it's, it's absolutely true in Scripture that the God of heaven, against whom all humanity has sinned, commands sinners to repent and believe. It's clear in Scripture, so much so that even in the day of judgment that is accounted for us in Scripture, we read that sinners will be judged for having believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God or not. They won't, they, they won't be disputing with God. They will just simply know, and every mouth will be stopped, it says. They will know. They did not believe in Jesus. They rejected Him. But as we get into the, the depths of Scripture, really the depths of grace, we understand that while God commands us to repent and believe, we would never do that on our own. We love ourself and our sin too much. Proof being, in the Garden of Eden, they had the opportunity to live with God forever, in joy, in holiness, in harmony. And they said, no, thank you. We want to live our own way, even if it ends in ruin." That's the condition of all humanity. Though God commands it, why are we going to obey that command when we've chosen to reject every other command he's given? Why, according to Romans 1, if we've said, you know what, I know there's a God, but I'm going to refuse him always. And I'll believe any old lie as opposed to the truth. So then how is it we can go to sinners and say, you need to repent and believe and have any hope that they will. The answer is absolute and amazing grace. And our text, this this whole story about, does the gospel really go to other people than just the Jews? This whole story about Peter wrestling with, I thought they were unclean. This whole story about the essence of the gospel, it doesn't need Jewish Convictions and standards and circumcision, it's just the message of Jesus Christ. This whole story ends in these words. God has granted repentance that leads to life. If you study faith and repentance in Scripture, you will find that both are a gift of God. They are granted in his grace. There's an old gospel song. In his love and in his pity, he redeemed us. It's taken from Isaiah. You see, God commands all men everywhere to repent and believe. But in his love and in his pity, he gives repentance and faith. It's amazing grace. So as you witness this week, and as you worship in response to your salvation, plunder, explore the depths of grace that even in the story of the gospel going to the world, to the nations, it's all of God's grace. It's His giving. It's His favor. It's His love that He sets on sinners. What a beautiful conclusion to a story about confusion, hesitancy, criticism amongst believers regarding the gospel. They criticized him. This can't be right. Peter thinking, I'm confused. This can't be right. God can't be right. Is is the gospel really this sweet? And our text says at the end, they were just silent. No more criticism. No more, what about this or what about that? Just the grace of God to save sinners through Jesus Christ. If you have tasted this grace, then share the good news this week. And if you have not, wrestle with these scriptures and hear this message, this age-old message, Jesus saves. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Adjust our thinking. Tweak our theology. Stir our hearts to worship at the thought of amazing grace that has saved sinners like those that sit in this room. We once were lost and now we're found. We were blind, but now we see. We are now numbered by your mercy among those who will stand around the throne singing our praise to the worthy lamb. Continue, O God, your gospel work in your long-suffering and bring many sons to glory from all the nations of the earth. Use us in our corner of the world or wherever you would send us to accomplish this great end, the glory of God, filling the earth as the oceans fill the seas. Receive our worship. Our hallelujah through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.